If that doesn't do something to you, people, come on. That little girl, just appealing. I love her honesty. Sometimes our stuff doesn't work. <laughs> Isn't that great? But if that doesn't make you just want to like pull out all your money and just give it to her, I mean, we, have a, we now have a new spokesperson for the Forest Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church when it comes to offering appeals. Amen? We will hit every goal. She's precious. She was here in first service on the front row. And uh, I, just, I just love that, man. Love hearing that little voice talk about it. And so give. Just help out a lot. Amen? All right. So we're um, welcome to the bridge, by the way. We are pleased and thrilled that you are here gathered with us. Um, cool thing. We get to wear sweaters today. Amen? Cold weather in Florida. Just go home and fold your sweater up after this because it's going to change. And it's the one day out of the whole year you get to wear your sweater. All right, that's it. Put it away. Um, But it's a gorgeous day outside. Lovely weather. Awesome Sabbath to have you here gathered with us. Uh, Really appreciate you being here. We're kicking off a new uh, new series uh, called Crush today. And um, it's a three-part series. Um, just through the month of February, then when we get down into late February, early March, we're going to shift gears just a little bit. But um, talking about crush, and um, the, the idea behind the series is um, this, this notion that we want to make room for God. We want to make room for God. And here's the reality of life for you and me, if we're honest. If we're honest, we would admit, we would confess that there's sometimes things that begin to replace God. They, they move in and clutter our lives and become more important than the true God of the universe, right? I mean, that's just the reality of it. There are things that happen, things that begin to clutter our lives. They begin to move in and take his place. Um, the Bible would say they begin to take the place of glory. We begin to worship those things. Now, we wouldn't come out and, and, and try to say, hey, yeah, I'm looking for something else to worship. None of us would ever do that. In fact, it's, re- it's really odd to even use the word idolatry. The subtitle of the, of the series is m- making room for God by, by crushing, by crushing our idols. And it's just weird to even use the language of idols and idolatry in our modern context because you and I have in mind, you know, that's, that's sort of this weird thing that people do in other countries or something. They bow down before statues and that sort of thing. But in reality, all of us, to a certain extent, if we took an evaluation, would say there are some things that creep into my life that sort of begin to uh, help, I, I begin to begin to orientate, make my orientation in my life around those things. And they begin to replace the one true God. That's the series. That's kind of where we're going. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to, to um, understand, to discern when there are in fact idols. We're going to talk about even what it means to begin to move those idols out of the place, but not just move those idols out of the place, begin to understand what God intends for us in our lives in terms of true worship of the one true God. So that's, that's kind of the series. That's where we're going to go. Before we dive in today, would you pray with me one more time? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for these people. I'm convinced that it's not by chance, but by divine appointment that they sit here this morning. There's something 
that you have designed for them to hear, to see, to sing. So I pray that your spirit would be in this place. I pray that you would fall heavy on this place, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would help us to recognize indeed where the clutter of idols is and then begin to address them. We pray these things in the mighty and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so there's a story that we've all heard. You've heard it. I've heard it. You likely heard it in church. There's a good chance maybe you heard it in another setting. But there's a story that we've all heard. And in fact, the reality may be there's a story that we may have all actually lived. It kind of goes like this. A family gets up on a weekend morning. It's either a Saturday or a Sunday. It's either a Sabbath or a Sunday. And they've decided, hey, the family is going to gather and go to church together. Going to go to church together. But it's a rough morning. The kids don't want to get up. Johnny and Susie are not digging this early morning on a Saturday or a Sunday. They'd rather sleep, and they certainly don't like putting on those restricting clothes that you can't play in, right? And they're, they're not excited about going and sitting and listening to some guy talk. But nevertheless, mom and dad getting up, and things go south really quick because Johnny and Susie get into a fight. Mom and dad aren't particularly pleased to be up and thinking about how they got to go to church too, but they, they know what's good for the family, so we got to go to church. And the dog and cat are fighting, the kids are fighting, then mom and dad aren't really talking either. It goes really south at breakfast because the food gets burned. I mean, just, you know how these mornings go. Then the time, the time, oh man, look at the time. We're, we're running late, running late. Dad is already out in the car and he make, he does the unpardonable people, the unspeakable. What does he do? Because mom's inside getting the hair, she's taking a little bit more time. What does dad do in the car? He honks. You don't honk, people. You don't honk. Dads, don't honk. If you want to stay married, don't honk the horn. And so he honks, and that just, she comes out. She's got blood in her eyes. She is just, right? It's going to be a great Sabbath, great Sunday morning at church, isn't it? And then it continues in the car because the kids are still poking each other. Little Susie's hair was great for a little while, but then she got into it with little Johnny in the back seat. They're fighting. Everything's going. It's crazy. It's loud in the car. They're driving. It's not a nice Sunday peaceful or Saturday peaceful drive. They pull into, all this continues, into the, into the, the parking lot of the church. It's still, it's crazy. Mom and dad are now silent treatment. No one's talking to anybody. They have these faces of skulls. They can't stand each other. They get out. Everybody's going to walk into the church together as a family so so they're they, they're kind of clumped together and they're walking towards church the, the pastor is meeting is um is, is at the door greeting people and as they turn the corner come around down the sidewalk into the church they put smiles on their faces husband puts the arm around the wife <laughs> they smile the kids sort of straighten up and they walk in the pastor says happy sabbath and they just smile happy sabbath <laughs> It's the greatest thing in the world, right? Now, the truth of the matter is that that may very well be a scenario, a story that at some point in our experience, we've likely lived out. If we're honest, there's a certain level of pretension from time to time that we experience, that we actually live out. We hide behind the facade of happy Sabbath, everything's okay. What you can't miss about Scripture, what you can't miss about the Bible, what I love about God and His self-revelation through Scripture is the fact that He chooses to be incredibly transparent in the Bible, doesn't He? 
I mean, think about, think about, think about. You read the first half of your Bible, you read the Old Testament, you start in Genesis, you know, and you, you, you read some of the stories there. There are stories in the Bible that are incredibly revealing. They're, they're incredibly uh, true to real life drama of the human experience. And God doesn't, God doesn't put any, he doesn't put any veils on him. He just sort of reveals in all transparencies his, his, his dealings with humanity. And these are stories, people, that you don't read to your kids before they go to bed, right? Because <laughs> there's some rough stuff in there. Yeah, there's some rated R sort of things in there. You don't read those to the kids, right? Yeah, you, go, go read how David took out Goliath. Yeah, it's not just this nice little children's story. The end of the story, you know what happens to the giant. It's not just the, it's not just the, the, the rock sinking into his forehead. There's another part to that story, right? We skipped that verse. <laughs> but the reality is the Bible is so real, so transparent, so honest, so true. Gives us a little window, a little picture into this, into this drama of a God. Of a God who's deeply, desperately, if you will, in love with the people. Whom he calls, whom, whom we call, the crowning jewel of creation. That's, that's who we are. We, we, were, we are the apple of his eye. We are, we are it. He is into us. So if you pick up your Bible and you, you begin to read it a bit, immediately, even after the first three chapters of Genesis, you are ushered into this grand drama that is very real and very raw in very many ways. And what you pick up on very quickly is the part that you and I play and the part that people who came before us play in this drama is that we're not particularly a faithful bunch. Now, it's not altogether our fault. Something happened. God originally intended for us to live in harmony with him. He designed and he created this place where you and I, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, could live and live in intimacy with him, that they could worship him, that they could be with him, that they could be close to him. It was a perfect sort of a place. He fashions Adam, breathes into his mouth, his breath of life. He becomes a living being, takes the rib from Adam, fashions Eve. Adam is smitten by Eve. He's like, yes, indeed, God, you have done good. He affirms God's goodness. Amen. And then, and then something terrible happens. There's this deception that happens by the enemy. And then we're sort of thrust into a new episode of the drama where there's been this grand tragedy. And now humanity is only concerned with self Shame enters the picture, and so whereas before we were vulnerable to this God that we loved and we served and we worshiped with everything that we were, now Adam and Eve run from this God, and now they choose to cover themselves up and hide. And in a very real sense, you and I have been running and hiding from God. Humanity has been ever since. But the story continues, the grand drama continues to unfold. And if you read the first half of your Bible, and even as you get into the New Testament, you begin to see the real dysfunction of these people who have now been infected and impacted by sin. They are self-absorbed, but more tragically, 
More tragically, they continue to break the heart of their, of their creator God. They begin, to, they begin to stray in the relationship. Listen to this from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. This is how God This is how God viewed his people and how God continues to view his people. But look at how the the story goes. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have what? Loved. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I, yes, terrible thing happened with this whole sin thing, but not All is not lost. I love you. I am drawing you to myself. I want to be with you. You are not going to be lost by me. I will pursue you. But time and time again, what do we see? We see these people who struggle to be faithful to the one true God. Isn't it? it, I mean, it's crazy when when we look at it now in our sort of modern uh, you know, we, we're all sort of, we've all evolved, and we, we look back at the Old Testament, we look at how many times can these guys go off and worship all these other gods? That seems so weird. Can't, don't they get it? There's just one God. And yet time and time again, there's this story of a God who draws them, who calls them, who pleads with them, who covenants with them, longs to be with them, and still... They wander off. They wander off. They give their affections over to something else. They begin to worship the creator, created thing as opposed to the creator, God. And it's tragic. And it's painful. I don't think we can appreciate it. Maybe, maybe to a certain extent we can, Right? I was telling the first service group, I was like, there's something worse than hate. There's something worse than hate, man. And that's one-sided love. One-sided love. When you are so into someone else, but they don't return the love. When you're so faithful to someone else, when you're committed and covenanted with someone else, but they don't return the love. There's something worse than hate. I'd almost rather you hate me than pretend to love me. So that's kind of where this God of the Old Testament kind of reveals this this dysfunctional relationship. It's not a dysfunction on his part. It's a dysfunction on our part. But God never relents. He comes after us. He, He longs to be with us. He still has this idea of a relationship with us. So if you go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 4, he begins to sort of lay out what it's supposed to be like between us and him. Exodus chapter 20, he recognizes that they've been in a place where all they've seen, all they've seen is this worship of many gods. They've been in Egypt. They were slaves there. They've been sort of impacted over the last, on the, over 400 years with this worship of many, many gods. And he's calling them to himself, trying to, he wants to lay out the parameters now of a relationship that they can have with him because he's going to give them the life that they so long for. And so he lays it out. You and I are familiar with the Ten Commandments. A lot of theologians say if we could get the first two commandments down, that'd make the rest of them go a lot easier. Here it is, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 4. Listen to what this God who pursues us says. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's as if the God of the universe pins this love letter, not so much these prohibitions, as much as a love letter outlining how this agreement, this covenant should go, helping us to understand that this is how, this is how relationships are supposed to work. You and I are now exclusive. There's to be no others. So there's, there's, this, there's this running analogy throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and even a little bit in the New Testament, of, of, of marriage, a relationship between a man and a woman. God chooses to, to take this and, and, and paint this picture of, this, of the faithfulness and the bondedness and the intimacy that should exist between a husband and a wife. And he relates that to how you and I are. Basically, he says, look, don't go giving yourself away to other relationships. Stay exclusive with me. Let me be your one and only. Make me yours. You are mine. Make me yours. In a week, we'll celebrate that great, that great holiday that invites others to be mine, Right? And it was about 22 years ago that I asked my Valentine, who's seated on the second pew, to be mine. And apparently it worked. Amen? <laughs> Come on, people. Hello. I'm going to pray for y'all. I am. So, so, so God, in his, in his awesome wisdom and self-revelation, lays out his understanding of what the relationship should be like. Have no other gods before me. Love me, serve me. And notice the word he throws in there. It's a word that perhaps we struggle with at times. God says, I am a jealous God. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time with it today, next week. God is a jealous God. There's a there's a fire that burns deep within the heart of God for his people. And it's disrupted when his people, people are unfaithful to him. It bothers him because he loves so deeply and so strongly. He longs to be with, and yet he cannot seem to get us to make him ours. He's a jealous God. But then God lays out another helpful reminder to you and me. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3 through 9, God's people, the descendants of Abraham, um, his children who he made the promise to, I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey, the people who he rescued 
another beautiful act of love. The God of the universe goes in. He says, I will take Pharaoh down so that you can be free. Not be free just to do your own thing, but be free to be with me in a land that flows with milk and honey. I'm not only going to make you mine, I'm going to give you the world too. And so in the Hebrew mind, what they understood about God is captured in these verses in Deuteronomy, which, by the way, Deuteronomy was the most widely circulated uh, of the Old Testament letters in Jesus' day. Jesus would quote the book of Deuteronomy numerous times throughout the New Testament, partially because this was ingrained. These passages that we're looking at were ingrained in the Hebrew people. It's called the Shema. It's not so much a prayer as much as it is a creed, a a conviction, a statement of faith about God and who he is and our relationship to him. And for good, faithful Hebrew people, they understood that in the morning and in the evening, they they would quote that. They would say it. They would get up. It'd be the first thing on their lips in the morning, the last thing that would come out of their mouths at night. And listen to these words, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3 through 9. And listen to how they affirm and remind his people that he is the one true God. Hear, Israel. Hear, Israel. Listen to me, Israel, is what he says. And be careful to obey so that, may, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, look, I have only your best in mind. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. That's a great expression of love. That you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Here it is again, he says, here. You see how emphatic God is? Listen to me. Listen to how I love you. Listen to how this relationship can go. And you can glean the greatest benefit from it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to verse 4. Love the Lord your God. Love. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. Your heart, <coughs> excuse me, with your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, everything that you are. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Verse 7, impress them. Not only do I want you to love me, but I want your families to love me too. I want you to impress it upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When you're in love, when you love someone, you can't shut up talking about them. When you're taken with someone, when you're all in with someone, you can't help but have them constantly on your mind. And what God is saying, what God is suggesting and and, and, and appealing to your heart and my heart and to his people all down through the ages of time, will you give me your heart Give me all of you. Think about me. Let's become exclusive. Let's let this thing be about you and me 
alone. Go all in with me. I know, I know distractions exist all around. I know you're tempted to give your heart and your affections to all these other things. And there's no question, there's plenty of things out there. But would you just pay attention to me? Could you give me your fullest attention? Now, here's the other thing that comes out. We're talking about getting rid of our idols. And we're talking about crushing our idols. And it's true because there's a part of us, especially as believers, where we realize God's appeal to our hearts to make him our own. And, and in fact, to, to totally disregard everything else, to separate ourselves from these little idols that creep into our lives, as attractive as they are. And we feel that calling. We understand God's calling on our lives, and we move away from those things. We even go through this process of, of crushing these idols, and we, we step away from them. And it's a good thing. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. Um, here's a good way to illustrate it. So I went to... Um, Ozark Academy up in Northwest Arkansas. You've heard me say that a number of times if you come here. And uh, great, great little school up in Northwest Arkansas. And we, um, we would have these weeks of prayer, like every Christian school does. They have these weeks of spiritual emphasis. And, um, you know, some speaker would come in and he'd talk all week. And by the end of the week, you know, he would make this big appeal. Well, during that time, this is in the 80s, kind of how old I am, but uh, yeah. So it's in the 80s. <laughs> And um, there's a big emphasis among Christian people, among Adventist people, among church people, because we were terrified and fearful and afraid of rock music. <clears throat> rock music. And so, and so they bring in these speakers that come and talk about the evils of rock music and how we shouldn't listen to it and get rid of your rock music and it's a terrible thing, it's an idol, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and that's all well and good. That's you know, very important. And so at the end of the week, though, it... Some of, the, some of the students would, would really be, be touched by that, all right? And some of you, you know, some of you went to school. You heard some of these kids, and, and they would then go and take all their cassette tapes. Remember cassette tapes? Some of y'all still have them, don't you? Cassette tapes. When nobody's around, you pop it in. You're like, ooh. All right, move on, people. Move on. All right, so... So we have the cassette tapes, and the kids would go, and they'd be repenting of, you know, making an idol out of this rock music, and they'd rip all the tape out of the inside of the tape, right? Destroy that tape, or they'd go and they'd crush it, and they'd get their CDs, and they'd go and crush those, or uh, some people have a big old bonfire and throw all the evil rock music away. And I thought it was quite fascinating. I'm not trying to make light of it um, as much as I'm trying to make a point. Stay with me. So, so... I thought it was always quite fascinating because it was like, like a month later, I'd be in the dorm and I'd see some poor kid. He's, he's found one of his cassette tapes that he tried to destroy and he's taking a pencil. Remember those cassette tapes? He's taking a pencil and sticking it in the little thing <laughs> and trying to recover the tape, trying to fix it because he wants, he wants to listen to that evil rock music again, right? So slowly but surely, the evil rock music idol has crept back into his life. Here's the thing. There's a problem with our spirituality. And the problem with our spirituality is we say, get rid of the idols. Get rid of stuff. Remove these things from your life, good Christian Adventist people. But what we, what we failed to say as I was coming along and what 
sometimes we fail to say, even as we're coming along as adults, what we fail to say is that for every idol that we remove, or for the idols that we remove, there must be a replacement. And the replacement isn't another idol. The replacement isn't something else to worship that isn't creator God. The replacement is the one true God. If you go back to verse 4, you go back to verse 4 of the, of the Shema, what does he say? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But not just any one, he is the one. And the, the Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word ahead, ahead. You'll, you'll remember that because you think of ahead, but it's ahead, E-H-A-D, and what that word means, what, is, what, is, what the Hebrew uh, authors were trying to communicate is that the God of the universe is, is one whole, and he is the one true God. He's not many gods. It was an affirmation of, of monotheism, not polytheism. He says, I'm just one God. Now, the interesting thing about the Trinity, God, Father, Holy Spirit, and what, what the Hebrews are trying to capture is that there is a closeness to this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are a community that is so intimate and so close that they are one. So it's an affirmation of the reality of this God being the one. It's not just that we have to remove idols. We have to replace the idols with the one true God. What's often missing is the replacing. God says, don't just discard the idols that pull you away from me. Replace them with me, the one true God. Because if you don't, guess what? You'll be like the kids in the dormitory trying to recover his tape. Eventually, those same gods, if you don't replace them with the one, those gods creep back into your life. So he says, I am the one true God. Replace the other gods with me. I am the one. Again, the metaphor of marriage is appropriate here. When I stand before a couple and I do their wedding, I talk about how there's going to be an intimacy and a bondedness now between you two. What God intends for you is that though you are two separate individual people, you're going to become so intimate and so close that you are one. And then when, when you become parents, your, your children try to disrupt your oneness, right? They won't sleep in your bed and stuff. <laughs> Kick them kids out. No, the other way, the other thing that they do is they kind of play on you. My kids would do this. They would go to mom and ask her one thing. And if they didn't get the answer from mom that they wanted, they'd come to me and ask me the same thing. Ah, but we got, we got on to them. And so when they would come to us and we knew they were playing that game, I would go, go ahead and say, well, you can go ask your mom, but she's going to say the same thing that I said because we are one. Amen? So here's the thing. It's not just about crushing idols. It's about replacing idols with one, the one true God. And it's powerful. When you remove idols and you replace them with the one true God, life begins to make a whole lot more sense. 
you begin to see, you begin to realize that as you, as you, as your reference points, as you begin to have an orientation around God, God becomes the center. God becomes everything. The one true God becomes everything. So whereas before you're trying to do your own thing and, and make life work for you in the way that you wanted to make life work, you begin to see that life really only works and really only runs smoothly when God is at the center and not my other little idols. You crush them and you move them out of the way. And you say, I got one. I got one who gives my life meaning. I have one that gives my life purpose. I have one true love. And he's the love of my life. He's the love I will eternally love. And I want to be faithful to him and him alone. Lord Jesus, may we covenant within our own hearts to destroy the idols to get rid of those things that have cluttered our lives for so long. And that might, may we not only covenant to remove them, but may we covenant to replace them with you, the one true God. And may we remain faithful to you and experience the beauty and the power of your love in our lives like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.